I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upen.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia. My voice rises because I'm very excited about this gathering in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Michelle Taransky, whose book Sorry Was in the Woods was published by Omnidon, whose barn burned then was selected by Marjorie Wellish for the Omnidon Poetry Prize, who is a book review editor at Jacket 2 and a longtime dear friend of the Writer's House and a member of the faculty in our critical writing program here at Penn and famed, famed teacher of a course called The Poem That Changed America. And it wasn't Old Angel Midnight. It was probably Howl, right? Okay, but still, you're getting close with that course. And by J.C. Cloutier, a scholar-teacher-editor who discovered and then edited a previously unknown novel by Claude McKay, who has published a volume of Jack Kerouac's original French writings and has translated into English Kerouac's two French novellas for a new Library of America volume called The Unknown Kerouac, About to be Known, who has written about graphic novels and comics and co-teaches a course with the amazing cartoonist Rob Berry called Making Comics. And I'm pleased to say by Clark Coolidge, the amazing, eminent, Rhode Island-born experimental poet and jazz drummer, Clark Coolidge. Clark Coolidge is here, whose many, many collections of poems include Flag, Flutter, and U.S. Electric. I just sort of randomly picked some of 1966. Own Face, 1978. This Time We Are Both, 2010. And Book Beginning What and Ending Away, 2013. Contributing editor for Sulphur with passionate interests in caves, bebop, weather, Salvador Dali and Jack Kerouac, whose major 1968 assertion that, quote, words have a universe of qualities other than descriptive, hardness, density, sound shape, vector force, and degrees of transparency, opacity, has, and I mean it, Clark, deeply influenced what we do in this studio and at Penn Sound and largely at the Writer's House, who, with Susan Coolidge, who joins us here in the studio, hello, Susan, lives in Petaluma, California, a place I assume just now clearing from the smoke. Yeah. Clark, Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. We're really excited about this. And JC, you came in from Boston. I did. I did. Unless we confuse people, the fact is you are a colleague here at the University of Pennsylvania, but you're doing some stuff at a university, the first initial of which is H. Indeed. Okay. And Michelle, always good to see you. Thanks for having me. Well, the four of us are here today to talk about the aforementioned Jack Kerouac, and indeed about Old Angel Midnight. It's a sprawling work of prose poetry taking up more than 40 small print pages in the Great Library of America, Kerouac Collected Poems volume. But we at Poem Talk always choose short passages from longer works, which focuses us a bit. And today we will talk primarily about the first of the poem's 67 sections. This first section takes up exactly one page in the Collected Poems And we have a recording of it by Jack Kerouac. So here now is Jack Kerouac himself performing part one of Old Angel Midnight. 
Friday afternoon in the universe, in all directions, in and out, you got your men, women, dogs, children, horses, pones, ticks, perts, parts, pans, pools, paws, pails, parturiances, and petty thieveries that turn into heavenly Buddha. I know, boy, what's I talking about, because I made the world, and when I made it, I know I had a Lucian Midnight for my name and concocted up a world so nothing you had forever thereafter make believe it's real. But that's all right, because now everything will be all right, and we'll soothe the forever boys and girls, and before we're through, we'll find a name for this darn golden eternity and tell a story, too. And, but did you ever read a story as vast as this that begins Friday afternoon with working men on scaffolds painting white paint? And ants merlying in little black dens? And microbes warring in your kidney? And mesorulis microbing in the innards of mercury? And microbe microbes dreaming of the ultimate microbehood? which then ultimates outward to the endless, vast, empty atom, which is this imaginary universe, ending nowhere, and never even born, as Banke well-polled when he ferried his mother over the rocks to twat U.T. and people visit his hut to inquire, what other planet features this? And he answers, what other planet? Though the sounds of the entire world are now swimming through this window from Mrs. McCartiola's twando and old Pokes home drunk again, and of course you hear the cats wailing in the whale bar, wild bar, wart fence, moonlight, midnight, Lucian, Dolophine, immensity, visions of the Tathagata, seat of purity and womb. And so that here is all this infinite immaterial, meadow-like golden ash swim swarming in our enlightened brains. And the silence, shifallying in our endless ear. And still we refuse, naked and blank, to hear what the who? The who? To what you? We'll say the diamond boat and persipine, recipine, milltown, heroine and fac matches the silver ages everlasting. Swarm swallowing in a simple broom. And at night you raise the square white light from your ghost beneath the root-drinking tree. And coyote won't hear you, but you'll ward off the inexistent devils. Just to pass the time away, and meanwhile it's timeless to the ends of the last light year. It might as well be getting late Friday afternoon where we start so's old sound. Can come home when works are done and drink his beer and tweak his children's eyes. Clark, I have enjoyed watching you listen to Jack Kerouac. Can you say something about the voice that you hear? Well, it's a voice that you can't ever forget. I, I remember when On the Road came out, and I, um, a friend of mine in the dorm, I was a sophomore at Brown then, 57, and it was, that book was briefly a bestseller, strangely enough. And um, I would lend it to people. I got so wild about it. And they would come back and hand it back to me and say, oh, I, I don't get all these dashes. And, you know, what? they couldn't get the sound they had. Well, when the records came out, this and two other ones, i play that for these people. And they no longer had any problem, you know, reading him to themselves because they could hear, you know, as he says, the voice in ear, you know. Yeah. So I, I quickly... I mean, he's the guy that inspired me to write to begin with. I mean, I went backstage at Hunter College at that crazy, is there a B generation panel in 59, and shook his hand and thanked him. Mm. And I'm so glad. <laughs> I believe in that. I think you should do that to your heroes. Yeah. You know. And, uh, we got to do that today a little bit with you. Yeah, oh, that's right. There's I didn't a, there's mean a to lead into <laughs> There's a really kind of uh, a, a generational uh, acknowledgement like that. JC, uh, the, the voice is so important to you 
I mean, does the claim the sounds of the entire world are now swimming through the window, which is, of course, the methodological idea of this book, does that that claim hold up for you? And, of course, elsewhere later, he talked about this as a kind of multilingual work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, and on the back here, the the edition I've got, it says, you know, Ole Elgil Midnight is only the beginning of a lifelong work in multilingual sound. Um, and I think you do hear, you do hear that here, this kind of experiment in multilinguality. And in fact, that is Kerouac's voice. It's not just one voice. It's more than one language at the same time. It's more than one voice. And you can, you can hear, we heard it just now when he, when he goes fast for, I know boy, what's I talking about the case I made when he kind of changes his cadence and goes into this more Americana He's reproducing specifically voices overheard through the window or voices he heard and wrote down in notes. Right. But the fact that his native language was an oral language in the sense that it was not a language that had a scripturality to it, to quote Edouard Glissant. French-Canadian, right? Yeah, French-Canadian. That that particular uh, language that he learned to write, that he learned to speak with and think with, did not have a way of being written down. But what he did is he labored very hard to try to capture that sound on paper. That's And so his experiments with, with funky spelling and kind of crazy-looking words, when you first look at it, it's not in any dictionary. That's from a, a lifelong laboring to capture sound. Mm-hmm. Michelle, what do you hear? As a non-Kerouac scholar um, and perhaps more of an outsider, um, especially as a poet looking at this, thinking about how it might be poetry, and, and again, thinking about the influences that the beat poets might have had on Kerouac's prose. Um, I see a lot of multilingualism. I see a lot of uh, hypertaxis of like things coming together in a way, in ways that they don't for me come together in On the Road uh, as narrative, though I think there is a thread of narrative here. He begins with Friday afternoon, ends with Friday afternoon, even though if I had to tell you what happened, I don't know. I was there. I heard it, but I'm not sure what happened or if I would have noticed the same things. The model, Clark, is at least, you know, at least superficially, but I think more than that, uh, Finnegan's Wake, uh, where the sounds of the universe become the chief plot you know, so can we talk a little bit about that and how maybe that gets manifested in this first section? Well, I, I wanted to kind of enter a quotation here, uh, which is the earliest that I can find where uh, Jack was talking about writing this work. And it's sort of a poem that called Daydreams for Ginsburg, which is in the little book Scattered Poems. And, and it says 1955 with a question mark. And they not sure, but it appears to me that it's before 1956, when he, May, when he started writing mm-hmm. this in Mill. Anyway, it starts. I lie on my back at midnight hearing the marvelous, strange chime of the clocks, and now it's midnight, and in that instant, oh, I know it, and know it's midnight, and in that instant, the whole world swims into sight for me in the form of beautiful, swarming muta worlds. Everything is happening, shining Buddha lands, booty, blazing in faith. I know I'm forever right, and all I got to do as I hear the ordinary extant voices of ladies talking to some kitchen at midnight, oilcloth cups of cocoa, 
corridors mump the renegade in his darling drain. I will write it, all the talk of the world, everywhere in this morning, leaving open parentheses sections for my own accompanying inner thoughts, with roars of me, all brain, all world, roaring, vibrating. I put it down swiftly, 1,000 words of pages, compressed into one second of time. I'll be long-robed and long-gold-haired in the famous Greek afternoon of some Greek city fame immortal, and they'll have to find me where they find me, the thnupft of my shroud bags flying, flag-yacking Lucian midnight back in their mouths. Gore Vidal be amazed, annoyed. My words be written gold and preserved in libraries like Finnegan's Wake and Visions of Neil. Of Neil. That's that's it. You've, that's you know, that's the that, origin, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. So, can we say, JC, what is exactly the idea, at least for starters, of he- overhearing and then reproducing sounds that are coming through the window from kitchens and alleyways, and and an old guy coming home every night drunk. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things he's he's situating himself and his body in in time and space. Uh, which he often does in almost any of his works. If you if you pay attention closely, you, you'll know where you are at what time of day it is and um, what's what kind of other bodily sensations are happening around. And so Friday afternoon in the universe, you know, and compressed in one second of time. And as you read Old Angel Midnight, he, he keeps edging closer to Friday evening, but it never quite gets to Friday evening. You're still in the Friday afternoon. So all of this is happening in a very compressed moment in time. And so all of that, uh, and one of the things he's said about the composition of this is that it is uh, raw and unfiltered and it, he's letting his own kind of relation to language as it comes through his ear down onto the page. People have a sense of Kerak doing that all the time as his method. Like he has this no revisions kind of clause uh, in his craft, but that's actually... Uh, Old Angel Millet is probably the only example where that he's really doing that, yeah. letting himself, not censoring himself at all. M- Michelle, this is an experiment in other voices. I mean, if we didn't think of the, I think, incorrect stereotypical view of Kerouac as being uh, a self that kind of overruns all other points of view, we would be surprised by this Old Angel Midnight, this structure of hearing other voices and it's it's generative it's experimental it's the kind of thing that you would you know get your students excited about doing something creative can you want to speak to that side of this thing yeah i mean i think clark and jc have you know touched touched on this that these methods uh i think jack would say they weren't necessarily his own these were um he came up with these with ginsburg or with lucian carr or with neil cassidy that these were ideas they were all sort of working on this this universe together in this new way of expression. And no one had ever written something like this before. Maybe Finnegan's Wake was sort of like it, but not on this Friday afternoon in this universe with this pe- with these people. And to attempt to write a story as vast as this, where for so many people on the road was their story or their story they wanted to be in, uh, what about this? This is one that could include... I mean, visions and Buddha and goddamn golden eternity in an imaginary universe. It's it's so precise but so inexact. And I think JC talking about it still being the afternoon and not getting to the evening is what you 
would not expect from a novelist. Like, it has to go somewhere, right? There has to be an end. There has to be time passing. But what happens if in a story as vast as this, we're still just here? Of course, if Visions of Cody had come out by this time, which it hadn't, a few more years, um, you would have heard examples of this kind of babble right. going on. And in fact, right. I think Cody's the great, great symphonic masterwork that Jack wrote because it has all his moves. And I'm not sure where the word babble flow came from. But, I thought you created that Well, maybe phrase. I did. I don't know. I, think you did. I mean, babble is, is the word he used. Right. Um, so I don't know. I, so I was interested, too, that uh, he, he called this Old Angel Midnight originally Lucian Midnight, which was for Lucian Carr, his old friend, who was working for, I think, the United Press. So he thought of this guy as receiving all this, all these words from all over the world all the time, mm. you know. Like a radio and, receiver. And it, it would be a wonderful title, except Lucian nixed it because he didn't want any connection to the B generation after the killing. You know, he's, yeah. now there are, what, three movies about that thing? Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, what, so following that, what I'd like to do in a minute is turn to section four, which we we promised we weren't going to do more than one section. But I think I'd like to put into play section four. Before, before we do that, I'd like each of us to pick a phrase or a line and just pick it from section one and talk about it. Sure. I mean, there's a, a few. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite words is the, my you know ultimate microbehood. The <laughs> ultimate microbe hood. Is the, the ultimate uh, microbe the ultimate, hood. You know, microbe, microbes dreaming of the ultimate microbe hood. Uh, there's is, a, so microbes are the ones dreaming. They're yeah. self-conscious microbes, I think, right? Yeah, and there's you can hear in the you can hear he's smiling as he's saying that line and he's enjoying uh, himself. There's that kind of a uh, a pleasure and a little bit of Burroughs language as a disease, maybe. <laughs> May as a language virus, yeah. yeah. Although I mean, I think it's more positive than it's like a it's not a threat to a, to, to the the host here. It's uh, it's just you know being microbe hood, man. You know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Michelle, a phrase or something that puts into the record for us the sound of the language. Uh, find a name for this goddamn golden eternity. Um, I think so much of what poets, especially think that fiction prose writers do is name things and make them concrete in particular. And I think it's so beautiful that here he's asking for a name and not naming and leaving it open. And I think, um, I mean, he named it Goddamn Golden Eternity, but that he's still trying and hoping for another name or a better name or something better to come out. There's a constant play for the referential longing that Kerouac doesn't ultimately believe in, but he's got this drive toward at least saying that he's trying to put his finger on something. Uh, okay, I got one, and then Clark. Uh, I just really love the end of this thing, which ends in a dash. The thing that moves me most about Kerouac is people coming home from work, people finishing the day. He's, you know, Kerouac seems to be very proletarian. I think of, you know, uh, Joycean modernism plus a certain proletarianism equals Jack at his best, and I, for me, and I am always moved by people coming home from work. Well, th this is this is that um, never Zeno's paradox Friday afternoon thing that you were talking about. But so my phrase is getting late Friday afternoon, where we start so's old sound capital S as if it's 
a guy coming, somebody coming over. So old sound can come home when works are done and drink his beer and tweak his children's eyes. Not pinch their cheeks, but tweak their eyes. Anyway, I just, I'm so uh, happily exhausted coming home and being sound, you know. Clark, you want to pick a... Pick well, I actually picked the same one, but I'll, oh, good. <laughs> I'll start further back. Okay. Um, I mean, I love the way it's, it's kind of this long retard toward the end, uh, the tempo of it. And at night, you raise a square white light from your ghost beneath a root-drinking tree. And Coyote won't, Coyote won't hear you, but he'll ward off the inexistency devils just to pass the time away. And meanwhile, it's timeless to the ends of the last light year. Might as well be getting late Friday afternoon where we start. So old sound can come home when works are done and drink his beer and tweak his children's eyes. I mean, it's beautiful where that folds in and, and stops. And tweak his children's eyes is just as good as, you know, Stevens in Sunday Morning. There is a, you know, on extended wings descent or a Williams, you know, at the end of his life on that kind of interesting. Well, I think, I think that's one of the things that inspired me so by his work because, you know, before that I started as a musician. I was a jazz drummer, so I knew about improvisation. And when I would see something like tweak his children's eyes, tweak, I would go... He didn't know that word was going to come before he said it, really, or before that relay from the back of his head, which might have even been French. I mean, you know, <laughs> who knows at that time? Yeah. You know, so I said, that's the kind of writing I want to do because I want to, I want to fool myself and surprise myself, and you know, see things that I didn't know seconds ago when I started writing. You know, that's kind of electric feeling of inspiration. Yeah. So, section four, which I'm about to ask. Clark to read, and I'll explain a little, provide a little audiographical information before we hear Clark read four, section four. Um, I pick four because, well, it's a great section, but I think it's as close as we come, other than one, to Jack talking about what he's trying to do in the poem and taking a stance against conventional poetizing. Uh, so it's and 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 again mentions as he does in one, wanting to hear the sounds through the window, which is a, a sort of trope for this the other voices. So, uh, Clark, are you still okay reading for? Here's the sure. audiographical info. You, Clark, and Michael Gizzy performed all of Old Angel Midnight, uh, a recording that maybe later in this discussion we can talk about, but a recording that we've just made available on Clark Coolidge's pen sound page. And I guess we have a Kerouac pen sound page in the making. We're still a little ways off from that. Uh, and on uh, Michael Gizzy's page. So anyone listening to this can go and hear the whole thing. Michael Gizzy is the one, because you alternated, he's the one who read section four. I kind of like the idea of Clark Coolidge reading four. And then I'll ask JC and Michelle to respond to talk about the poetics of it and maybe even the literary politics. So, Clark, you still game? Oh, yeah. I'll read Kerouac anywhere, anytime for anybody. Okay, great. Boy, says old angel, this amazing nonsensical rave of yours wherein I suppose you'd think you'd in some lighter time find hand be you for the likes of what you devote yourself to. Pa. Bum with a tail only means one thing. 
They know that in sauerkraut bars. God, the chew-chew and the wall lips. And not only that, but all of them indescribable paradises. A yup, old angel, my boy. Jack, the born with a tail bit is a deal that you never dream to redeem. Verify. Try to see as straight. You won't believe in, in God, but the devil worries you. You and Mrs. Turian, great gazes, and I'd as leaf be scoured with a leaf rust as hear this poetizing horseshit everywhere I want to hear the sounds through the window you promised me when the midnight bell on 7th Street did toll Bing Bong and Burroughs and Ginsburg were asleep, and you lay on the couch in that timeless moment in the little red bulb light bus and saw drapes of eternity parting for your hand to begin, and so as you could affect an effect, the total turning about and deep revival of world robe-flowing literature till it should be something a man had put his eyes on and continually read for the sake of reading and for the sake of the tongue and not just these insipid stories written in insipid aridities and paranoias blooming and why yet the image? Let's hear the sound of the universe, son. No more part twaddle. And don't expect nothing from me. My middle name is Opprobrium, Old Angel Midnight Opprobrium Boy, O-A-M-O. Purely, purely, sweet, sweet, soir, tactic, birds, and firewood. The dream has already ended, and we're already awake in the golden eternity. See, that goes back to the golden eternity. Yeah, it really probably does. on the next page. So, nope. J.C., uh, he's making a case here for the sake of the tongue and not, you know, narratives, conventional abstractions and things written down, but the tongue. How, how, and, and, and kind of tired of the poetizing horseshit. So where does that position him and how would you paraphrase that? Well, there's something about the tongue, about the way people actually talk to each other, about the way in which we live our polyphonic lives on, on earth and and sound the sound of the universe and that being you know something that can revive this world of world flowing literature um i mean he was always talking about that and always going against kind of inherited notions of form and content and this is someone who continued to write against the grain uh in front of uh, so much rejection and so much, so many no's, even from his closest friends. You know, so we have some letters even from Ginsburg saying, I think you're going too far here. And he, and, and he still believed in himself, which is just uh, astounding. You know, I mean, if I, if I had announced that confidence, I feel like I'd do anything. <laughs> in fact, yeah. it, was, it was Visions of Cody yeah, that Alan right. said that about. Yeah. You know, yeah. Which is also my a, favorite, by the way. There's a letter in, in the collected letters where he's just saying you just... You know, nobody is going to want to read this. They want to understand. There's no narrative, you know, and, and Jack, you know, well. The old angel is even. He knew what he was doing. I mean, it's. I think that the tragedy of Kerouac to me is he was so serious as a writer. I mean, as you just pointed out, you read those early um, notebooks where he, journals where he kept a note of how many words he wrote per day. Right, right, right. And I know other writers have done that, but he always, there are places that are so tenderly, outspokenly saying, I just want to be taken seriously as an artist, as a writer. And, you know, and then we know what happened, you know. I mean, there's an incredible passage in Joyce Johnson's book, Minor Characters, where she 
uh, was with Jack the night that the Gilbert Milstein review of On the Road came out in the New York Times, praising it to the skies. And she says, and then Jack Kerouac went to bed non-famous for the last time in his life. Yeah. The next morning, the bells, the phone, the door were ringing, and cases of champagne were delivered, and he was Jack Kerouac. You know, and that ruined the whole trip for him, you know, because he didn't want that. He just wanted to be a serious... When he mentions Gore Vidal and people like that, he, those people wouldn't take him seriously as a writer. And Norman Mailer was another member of that crowd. And it's crucial um, that we know that the notebooks that form old, old Angel Midnight are basically 56, 57, 58, 59. That's the period when he's dealing with that fame. Michelle, so this poetizing horseshit everywhere, you teach your students... To, to see experimental poetry as a chance to find other new modes and methods, that's what this is, yeah? I mean, I think that's exactly what Jack is doing here, and he's not settling on a method. I mean, just in the passages we've listened to and talked about, it's not one method. It's not—I mean, it's funny. He says, and why yet the image? Let's hear the sound of the universe, son. I mean, in these sounds, he's giving us these images that we haven't seen before, that we couldn't see before. Um, Clark talked about the line in the first section, tweak his children's eyes. No one ever said that before. So he is doing this sound thing that becomes an image, and um, he is moving past it. He says affect and then effect. And I don't know if anyone's ever written effect like that <laughs> since then. Um, so I understand what he's doing with the poetize and horseshit, which I think is exactly what... Um, Ginsburg and the other beats were trying to do with like the accepted understanding of poetry. They were trying to say like it's a bigger world than that, and we, we will we will change it. JC, I have a question for you, and then I'd like to go around and get every, give everybody a chance to uh, make a final comment because we do have to somehow wrap up this unwrappable up conversation about Jack. Still Carroll. Friday afternoon. I know we're just gonna keep <laughs> we're just gonna keep going until old sound comes back and has uh, and we're, you know we're gonna have a little s scotch whiskey after this too. I shouldn't have said that I suppose because it's it's an audio program. Who knew, right? Okay, JC. My reading of section four, which I think is really important, is that he ha he works through this poetics with these large poetic statements, and then gets to my favorite passage almost in all of Kerouac, which is the purely purely purely, where he just does it. You know, he's just going to the edge of Babel or all past it. So my reading is he's liberated himself in this section to the point where he's just going to say, okay, this is what happens when you do it. Mm -hmm. uh, sound good to you? And do, do we, another version of this is do we need him to talk about the amazing nonsensical rave and then do it? What happens if he just does it? Right. Uh, no, I, I see the, that reading. I, I like that reading. And what, I, what I'd say to it is that by this time, uh, he's worked so hard to be able to, to get there and to liberate himself. So, so that's, he's having a, a great time right now. Or, or what was it? The, a, a big time? He was having a big time. Uh, and he, because he's worked so hard at finally being able to kind of, uh, you know, break through all of the, his his own inner kind of blockages, and kind of let it let his ability with with words and letters and language to reform itself and kind of actually yes do it. Um, and and in the the sections before, I would say actually you know three two th and three that come in between the, the ones we've been talking about, 
he's worked through the problem of religion, right? Like there's the elements of Buddhism in there, and he's worked through a lot of his own kind of personal hang-ups and then his, his formal hang-ups about, like, about what literature should be. Uh, for instance, like when he, like in, in three... He has the voice of what I imagine is his father because of, of the line. He says, La religion, c'est de la merde, passe de la merde, je m'endors. Right? So there's some French. Translate that. There's some French Canadian. He says, a religion is, it's shit, pa. It's shit. I'm falling asleep. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, sleep, I'm getting sleep, is what he's saying. And J-M-E-N-D-O-R, that's je m'endors, like I'm getting sleepy. But that's how he writes French, always. I.e., he doesn't need to write it out as it has to be, he writes it out how it sounds. And he's doing that with English, but you see, he's going to train himself here. And the, the pa, I think, is he's talking back to his father there, like, like cause he's so is steeped in all this religiosity, yeah, and he's yeah, like, Dad, yeah. it's shit. <laughs> I, once, I once had a, uh, a, a psychoanalytic reading of this, and I'll be brief about it. Maybe that'll be my final word, so I won't do a final word, because I'm hogging up some time, but I see him as needing to clear the ground in an almost almost an anxiety of influence frame of mind. He's got to clear the ground, and he does it with Pa, and then he does it a little bit with Ginsburg, even Burroughs, uh, in order to get to the promised land of the Babel at the end of section four, and then then the, then the thing really takes off. Okay, so final thoughts from the three of you: S- something you want to say about this work for the record for this poem talk on Jack Kerouac that you didn't say so far that you just have to have in the record. So, who wants to go first? Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just hope in some way that we haven't talked too much outside and around this work. It's always a danger. How, how else can you really do it? But I would love the air to be cleared in some sense and people could come on this work as if for the first time or actually the first time. I mean, I can't. I remember when it came out in Big Table magazine in uh, 1959. I, I, that's where I first read the, fir- the first 49 sections, which had been banned from the Chicago Review, actually. Yeah, and how by, Paul the Carroll, by the University of Chicago. That's right. Faculty and, advisors. I mean, you can't yeah. believe it. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. And there were also some sections from Naked Lunch. That was why it got so, banned. It so, probably more so, so naked. Probably, lunch, more. Yeah. probably more naked lunch. <laughs> but I think the judge had something to say when it appeared in Big Table. Something to say about it. He called it a prose picnic. Judge Julius Hoffman didn't okay. mean that positively. It's a prose picnic. That's not good. Anyway, I'm sorry. This is your oh, final well, final thought. Just, yeah. just I'm trying to recreate my own feeling when I first read Olinger Midnight and how amazingly generative that was and, as a source and. You know, at that point, I was kind of imitating this one and that one that I was fan of, including Kerouac. I mean, I'd read on the road, not realizing that that wasn't really the full Jack Kerouac work. I mean, it had been rewritten and rewritten, and names changed and things taken out. And in those days, like you're talking about, you know, what you couldn't say. In fact, it always amazed me that his early publishers made him change all the words because they were afraid of being sued by these actual people who were still alive. Yeah. Believe it or don't. Yeah. But, um, well, thank you. I think that's a good that even push the reset button. Uh, Michelle Taransky, final thought. I mean, I guess I'm glad that Clark brought up Big Table because I would have never encountered this work if it hadn't been for working at the Poetry Center of Chicago after college and my boss giving me uh, all of the original Big Tables because they mattered to the Poetry Center 
and being like, oh, I'm so excited to see Naked Lunch, and then finding this. And I don't know what reading all of those at the age of 21 did to me. I still remained a staunch Ginsburg, just like Ginsburg was the one that had more similar life experiences to me. I felt more personally connected to um, in terms of identity. But after teaching the Ginsburg courses for years, there's something so evocative for students about Kerouac, especially when they go from uh, all they've heard of is um, on the road to these other works. I mean... Doesn't that just, as we've all been saying, like change um, our ideas about influence, our ideas about first thought, best thought? I mean, they were revisers. I mean, so that some of the mythologies are incorrect. Um, but I'm really glad to talk about this poem again many years later. That's now, cool. Ginsburg like could never stop thanking Jack. I mean, I knew him for quite a few years, and he would very often, when the opportunity presented, say how much he owed Jack's influence his, his work. Yeah. I feel like that's highlighted a little bit in some Ginsburg scholarship that well, they, they for po- poets to, do They that. want Howell to be the statement, you know. JC, so Clark should have gone last on the reset button, but nonetheless, <laughs> final thought? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things, so we opened by starting about talking about multilingual aspect of this, and one thing that I, you know, have come to admire so much about Kerouac is his abilities as a translator. He's very much a, someone who worked, his poetics, I think, is embedded in a kind of auto-translation at all times, whether it's of sound or of, you know, the the more traditional understanding of the fact that he was a native French speaker. And I think that's at the root of everything. But the way that the solutions that he finds are breathtaking. I mean, in a 1949 journal called Private Philologies, he's translating into French Finnegan's Wake. Uh, in ways that are amazing. I mean, if you see the examples of what he comes up with, it, it's enough to make you dream of of a French translation by, by Kerouac's hand of Joyce because you see, like, one thing that's always moved me in uh, section 18 uh, of Old Angel Midnight where he writes in French, uh, Pourras-tu jamais faire dire tes grandes écritures? Which he's saying, will you never be able to have your great writings speak for themselves? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's cool. Well, I, I, uh, I promise I wasn't doing a final thought, but it's a quick one, which is kind of a meta thought. Um, when we choose a writer to feature on Poem Talk, we often will choose a poem from an unknown part of the writer's canon. Uh, and um, I feel mildly and modestly a kind of revisionist impulse in doing those choices. And I think this is a good example of it. So, you know, there are a lot of people who listen to Poem Talk, thank goodness, and there's a lot of people who will listen to this and say, oh, Old Angel Midnight, there's a small paperback. I can get that. I can read that. This, I think I'll do that. And that's what we're aiming for. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for each of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. And you're all looking down. So I don't know who's going to gather some paradise. Michelle, you got some paradise to gather? I know that Lainey Brown, who's a good friend of mine and a Philadelphia poet, is working on releasing through Jacket 2 an anthology of work by women after the Women's March and some political statements and images. And that will be archived on Jacket 2 forever when it does come out. And I'm really excited for everyone to see that and think about the new, perhaps non-poetic work that is so needed in the poetry world. So thank you, Lainey, and Jacket, too. 
Fantastic. Okay. JC? Um, well, yeah, I guess a little... Um, one of the things I have is I have Kerouac on uh, Google Alert, and I always look up whatever comes up. And one I was introduced there something to, every day usually. Yeah, there is something every day. But one I was introduced to this, um, uh, I guess a, a singer songwriter called Luke Redfield uh, through through this alert. He was talking about his influences, and I just kind of really fell in love with uh, the album that it led me to called Born American, and it's just a wonderful album. Fantastic. Say the name of the musician and the name of the album. Luke Redfield, and the album is Born American. Great. Clark, gather some paradise. Two Sound things. Paradise. <laughs> I was thinking of two things. One musical, one right, writing. Um, the late 1950s up to 1960 recordings of Cecil Taylor and his band. Um, I'm a bit biased because I used to play in his bass player's band, Bill Nidler. You did? I didn't know that. Yeah, in 1960 at a coffee shop in Providence. It's a long story, but... It's also, Clark, a long time ago. Yes, and too long ago to almost think about, to talk Could about. Could it be 67 years ago? Jeez, yeah. oh, don't do that. Um, <clears throat> but there you can hear the way bebop was breaking into the freedom of the future. Yeah. He, like th Those in the early Ornette record or not Coleman records. The other is a literary source and I've been trying to find some enthusiasm for collecting the work of another beat poet, Ray Bremser, who I thought was I think is also new American poetry with a poem yes, maybe that's two true. poems. Um he, he's another one and he's really a jazz poet and you have to hear him and there and there are recordings but they're not available. I don't know you've got any on We don't have any Bremser. Can there's, you point us toward there's a recording that he made at the church at St. Mark's Poetry Project, I uh, can't remember the date, probably 70s, uh, a work called Blues for Bonnie, and Bonnie was his wife. And it's one of the greatest read poems I've ever heard. And he was a great Jack fan. He loved Kerouac and he knew him. B-R-E-M-S-E-R, -E Ray Bremser. If anybody out there is interested in publishing collection good with a cd hopefully <laughs> <laughs> you've got an agenda on that uh that gathering paradise i like that okay my uh gathering paradise is very simple on the day that we're recording this uh actually soon after we finish recording uh clark coolidge will step behind the podium here at the kelly writer's house and and give a reading and that by the time this comes out that reading will be on clark coolidge's uh pen sound page so we hope you'll go and listen to it well, that's all the goddamn golden eternity we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Michelle Taransky, J.C. Clotier, and Clark Coolidge, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing... Zach Cardner, and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, I'll be joined by photographer-poet Erica Baum, Morgan Library archivist Christine Nelson, and poet-urbanist Davy Niddle to talk about three photographs of dog-eared pages in Erica Baum's book called Dog Ear. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Home talk.